So I came into the world the same year as this movie. So Ooh. that's fun to think about. Yeah. Luckily, I don't think I was a maggot. Happy birthday. It's a magnet. Woof. It's a magnet. <laughs> magnet. <laughs> I like magnet. Yeah. Yes. Happy Father's Day, Dustin. Uh, thanks. This is all for you. This is, yeah. my. <laughs> you got me a podcast. We somehow. Is this what it's like? Yeah, you get a podcast, basically. No, yeah. no, I meant the fly. Is the fly an ap- accurate depiction? Uh, of of what? Child Childbirth? Yes. Yeah. Indeed. <laughs> yeah, he did birth it, this it, maggot of a podcast. It, it is a horror That's show. Hey. Well, hi. Hi. I actually did assume that we were doing this movie uh, so that we could talk about a daddy on Father's Day. <laughs> it just worked out. It, 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 it just, yeah, just so happened. No, we are here more for Gina Davis than Goldblum, but no, it uh, did turn out uh, to fall on Father's Day. So. Yep, we're kicking off I Dream of Gina. So uh, so excited. Yeah. Great title. Uh, so welcome again to the Good Trash Genre Cast, where we gather around a table and we discuss the films you'll never discuss in a film today's course. And this week's film is The Fly, starring Gina Davis and also Jeff Goldblum. Um, He's there, too. Be- because we are, it's all about I Dream of Gina in this current marathon that we're in. I'm still Dustin. I'm still Arthur. Mostly still Dalton, but uh, who can be sure? And we have a guest host again today. Who are you, ma'am? Hello, I am Kirsten Thurkelson. So we are so glad you are here. Yeah, I mean... Thank you for having me. Well, we we know one big Fly fan in Dustin, and we knew we had to get another one on here. I... I don't know. I hit <laughs> fly fan. This is uh, I. I don't know. I, I watched this in the in the cold light of morning when I woke up. This <laughs> yeah, good morning <laughs> on this good day and uh, <laughs> happy Sunday. It's Thanks, a uh, it's a doozy. I mean, I've seen it before, but I wanted to refresh and. We're all flans here. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it, 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 does freshening really apply to your experience of seeing the fly? I don't, I don't think I don't, so. I don't think so. I'm, I'm the only resoil. I redecompose. <laughs> I'm the only first timer here, and uh, yeah, its reputation precedes it. That's for sure. <laughs> so uh, there you go, dear listener. We're going to be talking mm. about this movie, and we got to warn you though: this is not a review show; it's an analysis show, and that means we are going to spoil this movie. And so uh, Jeff Goldblum turns into a fly. Um, um, but other things will happen as well that will be spoilerific, and we're not going to be avoiding them for the most part. So uh, just be aware of that. But before we get on into it, this is how it goes down. We give a synopsis, spoiler-free for the most part, and then we do our reviews, which are softly spoilerish. We expand the syllabus, syllabus that we expand the syllabus, which gets more spoilerific, and then finally we get down to business. And we don't care about spoilers at all. So you've been warned. There you go. Uh, let's hear that synopsis, Arthur. I'm very excited because you seem to be very excited excited about it well this came from imdb because i forgot to write one in time um seth brundle played by jeff goldblum a brilliant but eccentric scientist attempts to woo investigative journalist uh, veronica uh, played by gina davis by offering her a scoop on his latest research in the field of matter transportation which against all the expectations of the scientific establishment that proved successful up to a point Brundle thinks he has ironed out the last problem when he successfully transports a living creature. But when he attempts to teleport himself, a fly enters one of his transmission booths. Don't do drunk science. And Brundle finds he is a changed man. This science gone mad film is the source of the quotable quote. Be afraid. Be very afraid. There you go. Delivered uh, much differently in the film, as it turns out. Be afraid. Yeah. Be very afraid. It's something. Mm. Yeah, so. the pirate was a real, was a real out of nowhere. <laughs> but uh, 
They're going to need a bigger boat. Yeah, well, <laughs> it's all Seth Brundle, you know, thinking whether or not he should, rather, or rather not he could, rather than instead of what he should. Mm. I totally jacked that Jurassic Park reference. But anyway, um, let's talk about what we think about this movie, with, with whether or not we like it, which may not be an appropriate verb to use describing one's experience. But Arthur, hey, do you like The Fly? Why or why not? Oh, yes, I dug The Fly quite a bit. Uh, this is the second time I've seen it, and uh, really uh, hammered it home for me this time around. I Man... Uh, this is a tightly paced movie. Uh, it wastes no time, has zero fat, and it just goes for broke real fast. Uh, and I dig that. I dig how fast this movie moves, uh, how slim and trim it is. And, man, most practical effects are the only way to go, uh, especially with something like this. I was mm. thinking while we were watching this that if this were made today, all this transformation stuff would be CGI. All of the transporting would be CGI, and that dry ice would not exist, and it would be some dense CGI cloud that would not look cool. Uh, but the production design on this with the uh, the practical effects are uh, just moi. They're, mm. they're beautiful. I, yeah. I, I love every bit of that. Uh, so gross, so well done. Uh, the Brundle fly prosthetic and makeup uh, is agonizingly gross and hard to watch. Um, and a, a great performance, not only from Gina Davis, but also Goldblum, who... Um, brings a lot of empathy and, and sympathy to his transformed figure that uh, there's a lot of emotion in that final scene that uh, really hits you in the heart, I think. And uh, I appreciate that this does that by capturing that kind of classic uh, monster movie feel and aesthetic in a, in a lot of ways. And so, yeah, I, I definitely dug this a lot on the rewatch. All right. Well, thank you very much for that, Mr. Arthur Gordon. What do you say, Dalton Stewart? Do you like The Fly? Man, yeah. What a, what a movie. Woo-wee. Uh, Arthur is absolutely right. There is no fat on this movie, and that's it's one of the best things about it. it and it it packs so much in it uh, from from the get go. I mean, just in that early scene, the uh, the small detail that Goldblum's character has motion sickness when they're driving to his lab. Like just just from there, it just starts with these little great moments. There's a uh, that moment right when uh, Gina Davis uh, realizes she it seems to realize she's also attracted to uh, to Goldblum. And uh, she tells Seth that, uh, asks him if he knows that he's cute. And he's like, oh, I am. And she gives him this look, dude, that is, mm, oh, it's so good. <laughs> it's incredible. And it says so much. Like, you can't you can't write a performance that good. You just can't do it. Um, and again, I think, as Arthur said, Goldblum's very good with the, uh, having you find empathy for the Brundle five, But he's very good at menace, too. And like a very specific kind of menace that seems very grown out of the same character he was at the beginning of the movie like his his menace comes from that like that sweet neuroses that he has at the beginning of the film in a way that's really incredible and i think him and gina davis are just so good together in terms of it really feeling like a two-hander i mean it it is both of those characters movies every step of the way i think but uh, that said gotta love that full gold bloom uh when he uh first uh has the perform the transformation and they go to the coffee shop that alone makes this movie worth watching. Not mentioning at all, as Arthur already said, these uh, gross, gross, gross special effects. Yeah, what is what's not to like? This is a movie that is absolutely bananas, and it's it's a good time. All righty, well, thank you very much for that. Hey, Kirsten, do you like hey. this? You had to watch this movie in the early, early morning. So, I did. Um, was it very unpleasant, or did you still enjoy the experience? Again, I, I have seen this uh, before, and uh, it was. I'm glad that I I'm glad that I had the excuse to revisit it. Um, it really is the quintessential body horror, I think, just because you get to run the full gamut of, I mean, he, Jeff Goldblum, I mean, he 
gets hotter before he gets worse yeah. like when there's that initial <laughs> mm-hmm. him going through and not realizing yeah. that something terrible has happened. It's and kind he... of the key component of good body horror, I feel like. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's got to be fun until it's totally not. Yep. And it does. I mean, it goes pedal to the metal real quick. Uh, I can't imagine. It's, it's, <laughs> so I, I always like to uh, go through a whole bunch of the, uh, of the trivia um, in uh, whenever I'm, whenever I'm watching, uh, whenever I'm watching a movie and, I found it very interesting. They originally, this was supposed to be a, a project for Burton. Yeah. For Tim Burton. Yeah, we were talking about that off air. Uh, I think, I, I just can't imagine a world where Cronenberg didn't do this film. Yeah. It, he's so, he's l- such a master of practical effects. And I think that this film would have suffered greatly without him. And it's just him so in his wheelhouse thematically. Absolutely. Too. Yeah. Mm-hmm, yeah. For sure. And they also wanted Keaton for Brundle, which would have been a much. Ooh, different different movies. Yeah, it could have worked. I mean, I, oh, I think, think it would have yeah. worked. Honestly, yeah. I think that that's yeah. I, th- I think that Keaton would have done a, a fine job. Yeah. It would have been different for sure. But they both kind of run in the same circle of uh, n- nerd hot, like yeah, yeah, <laughs> n- nerdy kind of. Uh, I-, I don't know, n- nervous, <laughs> yeah. uh, but still uh, charming. Um, but uh, but yeah, no, I-, I like this movie. I think that it is. God, it just does such a great job of being gruesome. Mm-hmm. And it just, you feel like whenever his fingernails start coming off and everything, mm. like, you, God, you just, you, yeah, you feel it in your stomach for sure. Like, your whole body just gets tense. Uh, but it's really, it's a, an extremely well-executed film, I think. All right. Well, thank you very much for that, Miss Thurkelson. Um, I am also going to say that I like this movie a lot. Um, and I've always liked this movie. It's a, it's a movie I was a fan of for a long time, and um, I watched it very young. I watched it on its original VHS premiere, so I was seven going on eight uh, when I first saw this movie, um, which means um, much of the context was lost on me. Sure. Um, but I did nearly quite literally physically throw up at the arm wrestling scene. Uh, that was my first thinking, oh, I don't know if I'm up for this. And I watched it all the way through the end. I did feel all the sympathy for the monster. It's got shades of Frankenstein working there. Mm-hmm. For sure. Um, in crazy ways, uh, which I like very much about it. And also, I mean, we've already talked about the performances. They're very, very solid. And uh, you hate uh, Gina Davis's ex-boyfriend. You love Jeff Goldblum. You are desperately sad for him. And then you also feel all the pathos of the sort of emotional roller coaster that Gina Davis's Ronnie character rides through the film and what's interesting about this movie is that it is full out a gross out horror gore fest splatter fest fangoria cover making kind of film but at the same time it's got ideas it's something else going on with it it's it's got a brain on top of it there's a lot of movies out there uh, i'm looking at you rob zombie a little bit um that just try to do as much as they can to gross you out to make you mm-hmm. uncomfortable to to create that sense of abjection and we'll talk more about that when we expand the syllabus but this movie does so with some you know real sort of philosophical underpinnings yeah. uh, at work as well and that's a rare beast indeed and so yes it is a full out gross out you know pulling off fingernails teeth falling off other bits and pieces of Dagon falling off um, as uh, Jeff Goldblum uh, metamorphosizes uh, those things are all very very gross and upsetting and they should be but at the same time it's wrestling with some ideas of, of again a woman's right to choose ideas of the body itself and the idealized self and how does one arrive at the self with uh, being incorporated being something that's bodily incarnated um, and so what does that even look like and how do you experience that 
in the real world without falling into the trap of idealization. And so that's really kind of brilliant stuff to be wrestling with in a basically just 80s gross-out horror film. Mm -hmm. And so that's what elevates this movie for me, and I dig it all kinds. So uh, there you go, dear listener. Our thoughts are definitely pro-fly, despite the fact that it is uncomfortable and upsetting uh, throughout. Let's go on and expand our syllabus. So you get the dream moment where you have in a position to teach a university level course and you get to make kids watch <laughs> the fly yes, congratulations uh, yes. so however you got that <laughs> pastor dean i don't know but we're going to be saying this is happening and now you're going to make them watch more things why because you hate them um or whatever um so how do you approach this as a uh, class topic uh, which includes deciding what themes you're going to be investigating and then what pairs uh, cinematically uh, or other media and also in terms of reading or scholarship would you use to do that. I go to you first. Arthur, what do you say? I think I would look at it through the lens of the horror remake. Um, yes. This is a remake of a 56, 58 movie with Vincent Price, um, also called The Fly. And uh, it, it drops in a period not long after, um, oh, my gosh, uh, the thing the from thing. I can't think of his name. Why can't I think of his uh, name? Howard Hawks. Howard Hawks is thing from another world. Yeah, but the who remade it? Oh, John Carpenter. John, John Carpenter. Carpenter. Yeah. My there gosh. we go. I, that, yeah, yeah, we thought you couldn't remember the the weird. No, I couldn't one. remember John Carpenter's name. That's embarrassing. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm gonna go ahead and quit now. Hey, it uh, happens. <laughs> y'all had a good run. Please um, stay. Hey, you know how there's a lot of movies? There's a lot of names too, yeah. man. Ooh, uh, Arthur, you have to go in the telepod first. Right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah, it follows not long after uh, the thing, and also uh, a 78 version of Invasion of the Body Snatchers, which is heralded as kind of the quintessential version of that film as well and and so i i think it's just really an interesting time we've obviously got cold war talkings but also a lot of things going on in the 80s that this is you know we kind of talked about when we were watching this aids was a a big thing that kind of came up Mm -hmm. and at the time as well the critics had had perceived that as well and so uh, it it was a really interesting time for horror to kind of step up and re you know establish itself as these kind of cultural metaphors for you know the darkness underneath, and and I think these three films really show how to remake a horror film well, um, and, and become the best version of those stories. And, and so that's where I would go with that class. I think. Yeah, it is one of those rare uh, occasions where the remake excels the original, and so I think that's definitely on point to be saying. Thank you very much, Arthur Dalton. You're teaching this great class, man. Uh, what are you doing this week, man? I, I think the, the the way to go with this right is. For me, it's it's science, society, and control, and like the, the intersections of those things, right? Like, wh- where does science become something else, and how does it speak to how we relate to each other as people? Um, I'm going to continue a thread from last week. I, I recommended a video game as part of the expanded uh, reading uh, for for um, Tank Girl. What, no, wait, God, what was it last week? Unbreakable. Uh, Unbreakable, and I did uh, God of War. Uh, this week I've been playing a lot of Bioshock lately, the original. Uh, nice. And I think it fits very well with this film in terms of these ideas of uh, who has science, who controls science, how does this progress get meted out to society, and at what point do we have to go, oh, hold on, this might be not good. Uh, it's, it's, you know, sure, it makes you feel great and uh, makes you virile, but also you turn into a crazy monster and try to eat people. Uh, so that's, you know, less good. Uh, and I think Bioshock brings in these these very interesting questions. You know, uh, we'll probably talk more about this in analysis, but the fly kind of interrogates the masculinity that can be around this persona of scientific invention. And I think uh, Bioshock 
does that as well, but also brings in the business side of science in a really interesting way. Uh, it's playing with a lot of objectivist ideas, that Ayn Rand type uh, libertarian shit, and looking at how those philosophies can go awry uh, because of if all you're ever concerned about is profit, like nobody can trust anybody, right? Uh, next up, we want to talk, look at this film from 2009 called Splice, which I think is a really interesting... Oh my God. Yeah. You know this movie, bud. I own this movie. Yeah, Vincenzo Natalie, I believe is how you say his name, guy that directed Cube. Uh, here he's working with Adrian Brody and Sarah Pauly, uh, two actors that I like quite a bit. I like Sarah Pauly a little bit more, but uh, yeah, it's it's very much... In the same vein as a Frankenstein story, as Dustin mentioned, I think a lot of these pairings are going to be kind of in that Frankenstein's monster vein, updatings or retellings of that kind of story. Uh, Splice is kind of concerned with the same sort of sexual preoccupations that, uh, you know, where is science a creative uh, uh, expression of ideas and, you know, where does that intersect with a, a creative expression of uh, physicality, right? Uh, and Splice just goes ahead and doubles down on that and uh, makes it a baby that they make, and the baby's horny for both of them. It's, uh, it's a very interesting movie. Ew. Honestly, we should probably do it on this show someday. It's wild. I think I'm game. A lot of the same body horror stuff. It's, it's <laughs> very adjacent to The Fly, but it is its own thing for sure. And again, I think it teases out... Uh, those the sexual elements in a really gross way, but uh, in ways that are interesting. Next up, the first film I thought of when we sat down to watch this, it opens with Goldblum uh, to camera trying to woo Gina Davis, and I immediately thought of uh, David Fincher's The Social Network um, because it is also a film that starts with a science nerd trying to uh, schmooze a girl, and it doesn't go so great. Uh, it goes a very different way in The Social Network, but I think they both become films about a guy who's trying to prove to the world that he's cool through science. Um, and you know, I, I, the connections continue there and the ways those pursuits can turn you into a monster sometimes literally. And sometimes, well, you're a guy that talks about smoked meats, uh, for an hour. So what are you going to do? Uh, my, I could definitely talk about smoked meats for an hour. Yeah. But how many times did you say the word smoking meats, <laughs> smoking meats? I don't know. You wouldn't say it 500 times because you're not, not a robot. That's true. Uh, last up is a film that is not about science, but still about creation and how they can, uh, turn you into a dickhead. And that's. Mother uh, by Darren Aronofsky. Amazing. Yeah, it's. Uh, I couldn't stop. I didn't think about it until the day after uh, Dustin and Arthur and I watched The Fly together. But as soon as I thought about it, I couldn't stop thinking about the connections between these two films and the ways in which it is about a man uh, who seems like a good dude and the way his creative uh, oddities uh, make him just a toxic human being to be in a relationship with uh, and is about trying to survive under that uh, bullshit set of circumstances. It is a wild film. If you have not seen mother, uh, I can't really recommend it to you. Uh, because it's upsetting. yeah, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna do that to you. I can't recommend you watch the fly, <laughs> honestly, but uh, I think they share a whole, whole lot. Hey, Kirsten, what's, what's uh, what are you going to do, man? What, the, what's this class look like for you? Oh my God. This class looks wild. Okay. Um, sorry. First of all, I just have to go back for a second and say, how have we never talked about Splice before? Because I am a, de- I'm a staunch defender of that. I am movie. too. I think we might've talked about have it once we? or twice. Okay. Yeah. Big right. fan over here. I, I love it. It's an insane movie. And, uh, I never want to make people watch it, but I'm always excited when I meet someone who has seen it. <laughs> it, it is upsetting. Yeah, it's wild. Um, all right. So my film syllabus goes a little bit something like this. Uh, original Men in Black. Okay. Um, yeah. Uh, for a couple of reasons. Uh, first of all, for uh, its relationship with uh, the metamorphosis. Yeah. Uh, which this film also, I mean, the 
it's, uh, it's cl- obviously so yeah, yeah. yeah yeah absolutely um and also uh to discuss i don't know when the last time you guys watched men in black was but it holds up extremely well Arthur's a big proponent of it. It's uh, yeah, been t- heavily talked about about making an appearance on this show. I am interested in the conversation of uh, when you go practical versus when you go digital, mm. effects-wise. Because uh, I think that Men in Black did it maybe exactly right. Um, it it does it does practicals when it needs to, and then those digitals, I mean, they, they hold up so well. Um, it's really impressive. Uh, but... Uh, but yeah, uh, Men in Black, and then uh, for again obvious reasons uh, on on the on the cover. But uh, Earth Girls are easy. Mm-hmm. Uh, another uh, Gina Davis, Jeff Goldblum starring piece, um, where Gina Davis's character actually has female friends, uh, which is <laughs> a component missing from this film for sure. Yeah. Um, so I think that it could be very interesting to uh, look at it from that angle as well. Uh, I, maybe maybe the fact that she has female friends is uh, the only thing that's missing uh, from this being, you know, a, uh, I don't know, happy uh, romantic comedy film. <laughs> <laughs> I think he really does love you. I can see the advice right now over <laughs> coffee from the friend. <laughs> You know, played uh, by a very young Julia Roberts. <laughs> ooh, yeah. See, I'd watch that movie. Um, and then lastly, uh, Twilight Breaking Dawn Part 1. Here's why. <laughs> <laughs> Holy shit. Okay. Uh, so in the fly, that I actually somehow managed to, until I was like in the middle of watching it, I completely forgot that Gina Davis, she her character winds up pregnant, and that it's a huge plot point that uh, she's not sure if it was pre-Brundle fly Brundles or post-Brundle fly Brundles uh, brood, as it were. Uh, and uh, how there's a lot in this film about the ways in which that pregnancy is body horror, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. which is also very... <laughs> Twilight is really Freudian, you guys. I've read, I've read all of the books and I've seen all of the movies, and it is crazy how Freudian and how uh, sex is bad-centric uh, c- that entire storyline and conversation is um because mormons because mormons exactly uh we love our mormon friends here on the show but also sometimes stephanie meyer maybe not the best thing to be teaching young girls yeah look sometimes your upbringing informs your art in ways that are not great absolutely uh and uh that i think that Twilight Breaking Dawn Part 1 is another perfect body horror because that film is in its entirety about what happens uh, from a scientific standpoint. You know, I feel like body horror really uh, kind of awakens our morbid fascination with, okay, but what if this? Yeah. Uh, And so it's pregnancy itself is already terrifying enough without the added question of, well, is this thing human even? Yeah. Is this thing going to kill me? Like, I don't know. So, uh, yeah, that's uh, that's my film syllabus to go along with this film is Men in Black, Earth Girls Are Easy, and Twilight Breaking Dawn Part uh, 1. I love it. Um, I'm also going to take a body horror and technology kind of approach and the identity of the self. And, and really that sort of discussion about, you know, are we are we simply meat suits or are we sort of, um, you know, Dancer. ghosts? Ghosts trapped inside our machine. You know, what is it to be a human being? And the fact that the, the presence of the body doesn't work very well in West. 
Western mes- metaphysics. And so the initial reading is uh, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Um, that You have to read the original and uh, go through that and then watch Bride of Frankenstein because that brings sexuality into it. And again, because Elsa Lancaster. Um, that's a reason all by itself. Um, and then additionally, I'm going to have a chapter two read out of uh, Julia Kristeva's The Powers of Horror in which she develops the concept of abjection. And uh, since we may talk about it a little bit later once we get into analysis, I want to go ahead and read the definition um, from Wikipedia because that breaks it down Crayola style, I think, quite nicely and uh, help us understand what we're talking about here. So it says this, the term abjection literally means a state of being cast off. The term has been explored in post-structuralism as that which inherently disturbs, disturbs conventional identity and cultural concepts. Christine describes subjective horror abjection as the feeling when an individual experiences or is confronted by both mentally and as a body what Christeva terms one's quote corporeal reality or the breakdown in the distinction between what is self and what is other and so uh, the abject self is as such the process that separates from one's environment and what is not me and so this sort of I'm not this fly I'm this I'm not this human I'm a human being this is just an amalgamation of body parts in the Frankenstein's monster those kind of things and to realize that the the differences between may not be quite as broad as once we thought and that you reach a state of abjection because you look upon yourself if you actually see yourself in horror because the self that you create inside your mind is uh, usually uh, purified as Goldblum thinks has happened to him initially um, when the fly thing happens to him. So there you go. Uh, it's a little Christiva, a little bit of Shelley, and uh, quite a bit of Cronenberg uh, for my syllabus there. So there you go, dear listener. Um, your syllabus just got a lot longer. I think now it's time to get down to business. It's Okay, we're gonna we're gonna mitigate a debate that is old and ancient in the last ten years of uh, film studies, which is uh, just a thing that uh, not film studies, film fandom. Uh-huh. We're, we're we're continuing to uh, re-referee the battle about practical versus mm. digital yeah, yeah, effects. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Why do we like it so much more? Why is it not happening? And uh, what's going on with all of that? And just just diagnose what's what is the situation here? And uh, why is it that we seem to love this stuff and it doesn't seem to get made as often? Go. I don't know. It's interesting because you, you know your your immediate thought is well, it's cheaper and easier, right? But it's not really. Uh, what's cheaper and easier? Uh, uh, CG effects are okay. cheaper and easier. Sure, sure. Sorry, uh, and they're not. CG effects are extremely expensive. Uh, in fact, the production of them is so complicated and in such a tight time frame that you see all these CG warehouses like come up and go out of business before they'll, they'll work on a movie and have gone out of business before the movie's released. Uh, just because of the way the pay works. Again, this is a very complicated issue, and you can go find lots of very interesting writing about this uh, online. Uh, suffice to say, though, it, the turnaround on getting that work done is hard. I mean, if you're not wet a digital or one of those big names like uh like uh, ilm you're gonna have a hard time uh so it, it is weird because these effects warehouses that do practical effects have been around for 30 years i mean some of them like kbx or what's the big one dustin do you know who i'm talking about they worked on uh, uh like a bunch of sam raimi stuff anyway they work on the walking dead they've been around forever uh so it's it's interesting it's greg nicotero or tom savini it's yeah. nicotero's company yeah, yeah. um it, it's just interesting that there are 
these this proven model, right, of we're a practical effects warehouse, and they're just not getting used. Yeah, I, I think it is simply the the ease of saying, well, if we do it practically, it's locked and pictured. The studio hates it. We can't change it. I think that's a big part of what it comes down to probably. So it's, 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 it's plasticity that sort of uh, – okay. I think maybe. Again, the immediate – oh, this is the obvious answer – doesn't really seem to be the case. So mm-hmm. I, I honestly don't know what it is. Is it because it is too upsetting? Is it because it's too uncanny? That's my mm. sort of uh, tentative thesis here. What, from from CG? That practical effects are too too uncanny. They're really? Too, they're too close. They're too real. They're too real. That Interesting. It's too gross. I don't, I mean... I was going to make the argument that that's why people tend to like them. Yeah. Is. Well, I think, I mean, you got to look at genre. I mean, in horror, yes, I think practical is a much more effective tool than what I would hope a studio would want to do rather than, you know, an action movie where a car catches on fire. I mean, there's no reason for that to be a digital shot, but so often we see Mm -hmm. things explode in this digital. I mean, well, and I think the safety, I didn't even think about that, Arthur, but uh, you bringing that up makes me think maybe safety considerations might be a thing, right? You know, you, there's just some places it's not safe to blow something up. Um, but you're right. I think with horror, it's big. And I think sci-fi is another one. I mean, you look at the star Wars prequels versus the sequels, right? Everybody's so excited about these mostly practical, uh, monsters or aliens rather where they've just done cg to make the eyes more expressive right and i think that's that's very interesting uh horror and sci-fi and the way those two get to be the the standard bearers right so you you had a different uh way that you were attacking it though kirsten oh um i think that that's the reason that a lot of uh people who are into genre film really prefer uh practical over cg is uh that when cg is bad it's really really bad Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's immediately this sort of thing that pulls you out of the moment and makes you think, oh, well, that's, I mean, that looks terrible. Like, why would they do that? And then it can sort of taint the rest of the film. Um, and I think that, uh, especially when you're looking at, you know, yeah, lower budget types of movies, it's, it's way more satisfying. It's way more tactile and squishy and you can sort of, I don't know, it's just, it, it's so it's such an abstract thing to try to like codify into words. I, I it it's warmer, I guess. Like mm-hmm. you you can really like feel the life behind a lot of practical effects and it makes it feel more real to you and less like you're an outside observer of this film and more like you can sort of dive into the film. Does that make sense? It does, yeah. So I think I think that I guess it's m- more canny to mm-hmm. have to have practical effects versus versus CG. Although what we can do with CG effects now is, I mean, getting more impressive by the day. But yeah, but I think go back to your point about budgeting. Like, I mean, unless you're Disney, who's able to just right? No, yeah, for sure. Re, you know, re uh, bring somebody back to life or de aging or whatever versus mm-hmm. you know a smaller company. But I, I think there's also that shelf life, like. To your point, you know, CGI doesn't hold up through the years as as well as a lot of practical. I mean, I think if in 10 to 15 years when we look back at Mad Max, Fury Road is going to hold up a lot better than some Marvel movie or, you know, whatever. Absolutely. Or Fast and Furious movie where there's yeah. a lot of CGI car Correct. use. Yeah. Okay. Well, I just, you know, I, again, this is a thing that is, it seems to be a debate, but I I don't know how much of a debate it is because mm-hmm. it seems like practical effects aren't going away at mm-hmm. all. But people are like, oh, finally, practical effects every time something comes out. And I'm like, mm, I don't know so much about that. But I am curious about this sort of 
a weird sort of debate that happens between the use and the choices uh, between them. So I thought that was just worth discussing. I will also say I feel like the uh, the ceiling on CG is higher. Also, like you can you can really do some amazing things with CG. You can only do so much with practically. Like, yeah. I, we and looking at things like Mad Max or. Um, Oh, like Dark Knight Rises or something like that, where they use a lot of uh, a lot of practical effects. Like, yes, that's impressive, but we can also, I mean, the sky is the limit when it comes to to CG. Yeah. And I think uh, I was started thinking about miniature when you mentioned um, some of the the examples you just mentioned made me think of miniature usage, mm-hmm. uh, and I think that's one where you can definitely point at price and time mm-hmm. uh, building. Like, I was uh, I think. Maybe we were watching it together, Arthur, um, or maybe I watched it by myself. But I watched something about Blade Runner twenty forty nine and all the miniature usage that went into the buildings. A lot of those buildings are real; they built models, and that's why that skyline looks so impressive and mm. physical because it's real. But it took a long ass time, yeah. and it took a lot of artists a long time to build it. So I think maybe yeah, I, I think I think the ceiling on practical can also be high, uh, but it's the I think that the money line shoots up sure. a lot quicker. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, and it's hard to do. I mean, you can't make a Godzilla movie practical. We did that in the 50s, and they're terrible, right? Yeah. I mean, we don't love that, but uh, we yeah. like you know what's what's coming right now with this sort of what King of the Monsters or whatever the name yeah. of the movie is. Uh, so that's that's a thing. Um, let's, let's shift gears a little bit. Let's talk about this age-old debate that this film engages in, which is this idea of science and the scientists going too far, mm. delving too deeply. Um, I, my botched quote about asking whether or not they could instead of asking whether whether or not they should, uh, from Jurassic Park. And Again, Joel, also, Jeff Goldblum. <laughs> yeah, and more Jeff Goldblum and, you know, Frankenstein. Uh, that whole connection of this seems to be uh, a scientist is not considering the possible ramifications and horrors um, sort of preoccupation with science gone awry. Um, any initial comments on that before we go a little further into that? Uh, the only thing that comes to mind immediately for me is just, you know, we've talked on the show ad nauseum about how horror is a kind of a conservative genre and you know normally that's filtered through the lens of sex and while that's certainly the case with the fly um science is the other target for uh horror so frequently right mm-hmm. and i i think um films that engage with that that nexus of sex and horror uh, or sex and science rather uh, are are fertile ground for horror for because it's its two favorite targets it's two things it likes to point its finger and wag at the most right right uh, it's the only thing that immediately comes to mind though does this come off as anti-science in the same way that a Frankenstein movie might come off or a Jurassic Park um, does it seem preachy uh, regarding uh, Goldblum is uh, sort of irresponsible in his investigation I mean obviously he gets drunk and does a makes him wonder. <laughs> But uh, is is that the thing um, that sort of exonerates this film um, from a Frankenstein sort of uh, conservatism? I don't know that it's uh, I don't I don't know that I necessarily get that it's preachy from it because I mean they say e- even in the film I mean they're they're saying hey this was extremely irresponsible of this man to go ahead and do this while he was wasted and jealous uh, without the proper testing and he doesn't even wait to see if the uh, what what is it? Is baboon. it an orang- orangutan? Baboon. It's a baboon. It's a baboon. That's right. A baboon that Who? it turns out could tell Goldblum was a hunk. <laughs> the baboons were very hard to control, and the animal wrangler thinks the only reason it didn't murder anyone is because it could smell an alpha in the room, baby. In <laughs> what world would you not use rats in your initial test? It's fine. Right. I'm fine. It... Everything's fine. Where we're are fine. all of these baboons coming from? I we, don't. We asked that many times. Yes. We just have disposable baboons laying we around. We just have the or... two. There's okay. a vending machine. Just. <laughs> 
Got to run out to the store, pick up more baboons. Well, that's the next ethical <laughs> question. Test, we'll get there in a minute. But must test out my machine. Um, but yeah, he didn't wait for the tests. So no, yeah, he just, yeah, he just, he just assumed that the, the baboon was fine, which ostensibly the baboon was fine because there was not, you know, another insect inside. But uh, but yeah, no, I mean. I don't know that I got that it was preachy. Yeah, it, it yeah. seems to me that the mistake is just the fallibility of a human being. Absolutely. That, that, that Goldblum he answered is to a, no one. Yeah, yeah. He was, he's just a person. And really, uh, this could have happened in a big corporate laboratory working after hours. You definitely could have celebrated with a bottle of champagne, got totally you know, plastered, mm-hmm. and then jumped in the telepod and had the same sort of error mistake happen. Uh, as opposed to, say, a Frankenstein who is not supposed to be playing with God's rules of life and right. death. You know, or as opposed to a John Hammond, who is not supposed to be monkeying around with evolution, right? Well, I mean, it's the story of Icarus. It's older than time. We've been preoccupied with this as a species for the duration of our existence, essentially. Oh, we got another one of those duration of our existence uh, ideas coming up here in a moment. Ooh. Uh, which one's that one? I mean, uh, I mean, do we want to keep teasing out this? Idea? I think you're right, though, Kirsten. I think I think that's kind of our consensus. Is no, nah, it puts it firmly on his hubris. Yeah. Uh, but there's that line at the end where he talks about, uh, yeah, I'm an insect who dreamt he was a man and loved it, but the dream's over and the insect must awake. Uh, that's God, from that's such this, a good line. Well, it's it, it's this idea from I'm going to get this name wrong, but this old Taoist uh, uh, text. It's like one of the the foundational texts of Taoism. It's called the uh, the Xuan Zhu. See, it's Z H U A N G Z I. Uh huh. Um, is is the text? But it, there this famous uh, passage in there about the butterfly dream. Right, uh, this guy who uh, dreamed he was a butterfly um, and then woke up and. Uh, he dreamed he was a butterfly and had no idea he was a man. Uh, and then he woke up and he's like, oh, yeah, I'm I'm this dude. Um, but then, you know, who's real? The butterfly or the dude, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's that kind of idea of, like, what at what point do your dreams of progress or your dreams of your truer self, like, butt up against the ideas of who you really are? And, well, you can't escape your own embodiment. Yeah. You know, that's the As thing. we it's... talked about in your – I was very excited to hear your where you were going with your expanding the syllabus for that reason because I remembered I'd taken a note on that, right? Yeah. I think we should tease that out a little bit more. So, yeah. You, I mean, your body itself is is gross. I mean, that's what body horror does. And, again, uh, we – you know, this is sort of, uh, you know, hyper-realized in this film, right? He's got a vomit <laughs> on his donuts. And... I teach kids, uh, and they're in between the ages of, like, six and eight, and so many times Ew. they'll be like, my teeth are falling out. And I'm like, that's horrible. But I'm gonna act normal because I'm a grown up. Yeah, I, I I know that's a thing bodies do, so I guess I'll just pretend it's we'll fine. We'll just pretend it's fine. Yeah, but yeah, we have all these sort of ongoing processes of you know um, digestion and expulsion, and you know, see our episode, the Holy Mountain. Yeah, yeah. There's, I mean. <laughs> e- Everything, you know, there's all these secretions and juiciness that is part of being in a body, right? And uh, we, again, idealize ourselves and we create special spaces. I mean, you know, we have restrooms here at Arthur's Place and we're glad of it um, because we just don't do it in the floor. So am I. Um, (laughs) I mean, all of that is sort of to separate ourselves from these things that are other of ourselves, right? It's very Lacanian. Um, the way in which uh, the the infant begins to identify itself as it begins to differentiate between itself and the mess in its diaper, and between itself and its own vomit. That's why uh, in the Lacanian moment of the Matrix, the first thing Neo does when he finally wakes up in the real world is he vomits. Right. And what is the moment when uh, Brundle accepts that he is now Brundle flies when he starts vomiting on his food to digest? Yeah, yeah and, and, the and, and the these sort, of, but these others are not really 
other. They are the products of the self, but we bracket them and we sort of try to find some ways to avoid uh, dealing with their, their reality. And so uh, that's, that's the engagement here is that the self itself is the body. And no matter how you might idealize it, I am a beautiful butterfly in the case of uh, your Taoist dream there. Um, or I idealize myself as you know a person who is very prim and proper and clean. We're not. We're not yeah. clean. We're, we're gross at all times with this set of organic functions that are always sort of happening. And uh, the ways in which that othering then begins to develop further, according to Christiva, is that we other others who are um, engaged in some of these bodily processes that we disapprove of. And this can be, you know, the obvious sort of stuff like, you know, um, homophobia, um, the AIDS virus itself is sort mm -hmm. of a manifestation of these bodies that are engaged in improper body, bodily postures, and as such, they've contracted this terrible disease. Or just um, good old-fashioned uh, misogyny, you know, and the fact that women have these processes that go on with their bodies that are utterly gross and disgusting, you know, the, the monthly Thanks. period. You know, and and so, th I mean, that's that's the idea, though, and that's that's how we other them. And uh, and of course, then we encourage people to hide their selves. Well, and that's, you know, the thing in you that you can't identify and you don't what is real in me. Right. And then you start to other the people around you so you can hide this gross thing about yourself. Right. Which mm -hmm. I think takes us uh, really well as a, this is a good segue, man, uh, to an, our next topic that I think we've got to talk about, uh, which is sometimes your boo goes crazy on you, huh? And tries to murder you. That's just the thing that happens in this movie. And. Man, oh boy, uh, does this movie do a really good job of being about an abusive relationship uh, through the lens of science fiction. And again, still fitting within this other thematic uh, cog that it's got going on of the self, right? And mm -hmm. yeah. when you start to find this gross self within you, what do you do to the people around you? Do you try to get help or do you try to push them away uh, to the point that you're hurting them? It's, it's very interesting. Well, that, that, and you begin to use them as simply objects for what you need, yeah. right? I mean, that, that they, you no longer engage others as subjects, uh, with a will and intention and emotional life of their own, but rather simply tools that are able to help you to accomplish whatever your purposes are. So we're going to combine the three of us, you know, you, the Yikes. baby, and myself, Ugh. and create, you know, the sort of perfect brundling or whatever that happens to be, or just simply just to control that body, um, in terms of him being pretty insistent on her not getting the Abortion. Mm -hmm. Well, and then I guess that brings us to the way Veronica processes this, right? Because she never stops treating as a subject. She doesn't want to shoot Brundle Flypod. Mm -hmm. She's still sad to murder her boyfriend because she knows there's there's still a, a Seth Brundle in there somewhere. It's just not the Seth Brundle she used to know, but he's still in there. And uh, it's very interesting the way in, in which her murder for him uh, is a thing that she knows she needs to do and is glad to do, but the, the sadness is she fucking real. She sells that performance oh, so, she's so well. good. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, he's, I mean, he's disgusting right at that point because he's also merged with uh, not only the fly, but also the, the, the pod, pod yeah. itself. Yeah. And, oh, man. Yeah, Gina and she's Davis just standing still. there just shaking and sobbing yeah. and doesn't want to do it. God. She's great. Anyway. Yeah, it's a great beat. Yeah. It really is. Even, I mean, even the... Uh, the the fact when the, uh, the the puppet pulls the gun to its head, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of emotion from that as well. That's it's so sad. Yeah, well, it, it, yeah, but yeah, it's crucial, right? I, I I think I'd forgotten about that, Arthur. But yeah, when he picks up the barrel, is like kill help me. me. <laughs> yeah, it's, 
it sells that moment because there's these moments when the the Brundle fly is more fly than Brundle, mm-hmm. um, and it's interesting, right? Because Goldblum is still verbal at that point where he's kind of gone full evil, and the turn back around is after he has lost his like ability to be verbal and like express himself, and it's a super interesting where the beats of this this fictional relationship find themselves throughout the course of the film. It's really pretty powerful, honestly. So we gotta talk about the other monster in this movie, Abortion, too. right? Stathis. Oh, Stathis. Stath- yeah, he fucking sucks. I'm looking, yeah, I was looking at my notes, and literally one of the lines <laughs> that I have in my notes is just, Stathis sucks. Yeah, he's, yeah, he's bad. not good. Gina Davis's character, Ronnie, has terrible taste in men. Also, she can't stop shitting where she eats. Sorry. That she's... <laughs> not wrong, bro. <laughs> she just has some bad not habits. Not wrong, bro. Uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, regarding dating. But yeah, no, because Stathis is also very controlling. I mean... Mm-hmm. He tells her exactly what, you know, she needs to do in regards to her relationship with this other man. And he just cannot accept that uh, when she's moved on, uh, he turns up in her apartment, which is fucking terrifying, by the way. Do not ever do that to a woman. We will call the cops on your ass if we don't have a gun. so upsetting. (laughs) That's very, very not cool. It's a smart bit of scripting, though, right? Because I think it primes the audience to... Every film has to say, okay, what can we assume the audience knows and what do we need to teach them? Uh, and I think the the fly, and I forget who is the other screenwriter that's credited, uh, but he wrote the first draft. And then Cronenberg's uh, draft, he says he couldn't have done it without the other guy. But the, the script is so smart to give, uh, you know, who Gina Davis at the time, just Veronica, but to give that character this beat to be like hey audience you might not know this but sometimes dudes be gross as hell mm-hmm. uh and to let the audience know this is something you need to be thinking about and to then show that veronica knows how to this is a situation she is not unfamiliar with it's such good screenwriting yeah. to plant those eggs for when goldblum becomes a different when he becomes a monster she sees it don't say plant those eggs yeah. <laughs> sorry <laughs> but it's but right because veronica sees it before goldblum sees it yeah um, Brundle is oblivious. He's just so excited about his his sick uh, footloose moves uh, <laughs> that uh, he cannot see what he's becoming. Yeah, initially, upon I mean, that's that's just mania. Like that's yeah. what that whole that's what that whole initial scene yeah. is after him teleporting for the first time and feeling just the best he's ever felt in his entire life. He feels like he can't die. Right? And she is concerned immediately. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's. That's just mania. That's what that looks like. So, yeah, I think it's great. I mean, you're right. Stathis sucks, but I think he fulfills, like, a super important place in the film. Well, I think he shows that that sort of objectification that is going on in Brundle is not limited to people who just happen to have a monstrous Kafka-esque transformation going on. Mm -hmm. It is something that goes on in very, very normal-looking white dudes as well. And uh, I think that's... That's where it gets wise. Yeah, man. You know, as a film. Yeah. Yeah. Your ex boyfriend will totally get a shotgun to murder your new boyfriend before he knows he needs to. Yes. Um, the other thing in terms of othering and objectification, I think we have to talk about as animals. We got to talk about the baboons and also cat baboon. Well, um, the deleted cat baboon. The, cat, the deleted cat. Do you know about baboon. the cat baboon, Kristen? I know about the cat baboon. I did not watch the cat it baboon. It looks like a cat dog. Okay. It's, yeah. It's un- <laughs> It's not awesome. <laughs> Is it okay? When you say not awesome, do you mean upsetting to look at or not yes. well done? Yeah, yes. upsetting to look at. Okay. It's well done. Yeah. It's, okay. It's quite well. It was okay. a finished scene for the movie that they cut. Yikes! Uh, following screenings in uh, in Canada. Yep. And uh, it's uh, 
It's gross. Yeah, well, and as we talked about uh, how empathetic the, the Brundlefly pod still is, and yeah, I think Cronenberg wisely was like, ooh, I probably shouldn't show him beat to death this cute, sad animal. But I think the original script reflecting this idea that animals are also possible objects and that it does sort of have this sort of humanitarian, um, you know, animal rights kind of uh, vibe running in it as well. I mean, it is. In, I mean, I think it is good as a deleted scene because it does make the film work better to not have it. But the idea that this world in which uh, stuff uh, Brundle is uh, is acting is that he is a person who would simply use that baboon as he wants to use Gina Davis, as mm -hmm. he ends up using what Trudy, I forget the girl from the bar's name. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, he never does put her through the pod, though, because Gina Davis yeah, shows up. Yeah, but he desperately wants to, yeah, right? And yeah. again, this sort of instrument... Against her will. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's instrumentational sort of usage of whatever or whomever is around him um, that we do feel a, a great sympathy for that baboon. And uh, there's a included in that scene is sort of that discussion of, you know, what happened to his brother and uh, uh, those, terrible, you know, and, then, and, the, and the really upsetting scene of the first uh, baboon transfer, which mm -hmm. is, you know, when it turns inside out. Yeah. I, I mean, that may be going back to a person asked earlier about why baboons, but uh, I think the... Uh, the fact that they are so human uh, allows for a different uh, connection point rather than something like a rat or a mouse would. And that may be the decision there to use baboons. I think that's a good get, point, Arthur. I, I get the choice in the film. I'm just, <laughs> my, I guess my uh, complaint is that in the scientific community, they Where would. They? There are stages. They, they, yeah, they would never go straight to baboon. <laughs> yeah, you start. Why would you go immediately full baboon? Yeah, you never go full baboon. You never go full baboon. You don't start there for sure. Um, I keep thinking this is what you're going to bring up every time you bring up a new topic, Dustin, but, uh, we want to talk about, uh, choice. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we're going to get there. Yeah. Yeah. We want to, we want to, we got anything else we want to do? Cause that kind of feels like a good place to take us home. Absolutely. Uh, so it's a maggot. Yep. Uh, and horrifying and a choice go. <laughs> I just want to say those two things because I think they, they, they need to work together. Goof. The choice that in the dream, it is, um, not a person. Well, I mean, it's confirming her worst fears, right? Mm -hmm. That's what she's the most worried about is not, I mean, bringing this human life into the world, but that it's going to be somehow wrong, that yeah. it's it's going to be a monster, right? Which is presumably the primal fear anybody has sure. upon welcoming a, a life into the world. Is it, quote, regular? Mm -hmm. Can confirm. Yeah. It's not. Did it did it come <laughs> did it is it wrong? Is this thing gonna kill me? It is, and it will. Can't confirm all those things. Well, there you go. There you have it. <laughs> well and it's uh we've talked about abuse a little bit already, but I mean this isn't a place the film goes in a big way, but I it definitely uh dances around the edges of this this uh um unborn life as a control, right? Mm -hmm. uh, as like, well, no, this isn't just your thing, so now you are controlled by this thing that is yeah, it's it, it goes there, I guess. This is... thing and this patriarchy around. And again, I... the questions of life, you know, again, we're, we're seeing the life in Seth. We're seeing the life uh, in even, you know, cat, monkey. Um, we're seeing some of these sort of questions where there's a definite, the line of othering that we really want to make sure that we don't cross uh, is there. But when we come to the, uh, again, the abortion sort of birth nightmare and the questions of what is to happen, it seems to be that the film falls quite on a different line of, 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 of trajectory here and suggests that the fetus itself 
is not alive. It is not living. It is not really what we'd call something with personhood as of yet because mm-hmm. it's gestated. And so when it's given, when when it when birth is given, it's in a larval state, you know, which is quite similar to um, some of the fetal states as well. And so it seems to me that um, we choose when and how we are going to use a sanctity of life argument based on when we can use those things for the sake of control. And uh, that's interesting. Yeah. Uh, it's, uh, it's very interesting that she does not get to make the choice within the confines of the film Mm -hmm. because ultimately, even though while she's there, you know, and it's about to happen, not in the dream, but in real life, uh, her crazy half fly boyfriend charges through the window and just carries her off. I mean, literally relieves her of her bodily autonomy entirely by just hoisting her out the window, like... Yorp. Like yeah. a like a Frankenstein. He wasn't too worried about uh, the sanctity of life when he uh, turned that baboon inside out. You know, no, no. no. Well, yeah. no, because that baboon was not part of him. Yeah, he exactly. He didn't feel personal ownership over that baboon. Yeah, it's uh, oof, who boy. Mm-hmm. And and you know, again, I I mean, I I think that the, the the suggestion that the film is making is that the choices that we make as to when and how we go about respecting life really are based on. Uh, again, ideas of power and of control and of the instrumentation of others. And the only point at which a choice is made about the uh, what to do with the life of another in terms of recognizing the humanity or the spark or spirit within a thing is when Gina Davis makes the choice to go ahead and execute Brundle. And I think the abortion line and the euthanasia line need to be drawn closer together here. Yeah. Uh, because that is a, that, that's a very humane choice. Uh, in that particular moment. And uh, and again, because that's Gina finally making a choice, right? Ronnie's character mm-hmm. uh, finally making a choice to do something along those lines, which is a pretty, pretty canny move there. It's, it's one thing to pluck a human soul out of existence and push it into this thresher. It's another thing to pluck a human fly out of out of existence and push it into this thresher. That that fly human baby's gonna have no peace. See the fly two starring Eric Stoltz. Oh no. <laughs> Is it Eric Stoltz? I think so, yeah, I'm oh, pretty sure. That's unfortunate. Arthur's Arthur's saying I'm right, so I'm gonna take his word for it. Yeah, it's it's all about how the the, the company that owns Brundle's research wants his uh, fly baby. Oh. Yeah, man. I'm Boom. Out. <sighs> I'm out. Sometimes the only ethical choice is the choice that uh, requires more thinking, right? Mm-hmm. Fucking A, man. That's a show. All righty. Well, uh, let's render a verdict now. What do we say about the fly? Shall we shelf it or trash it? I go to you first, Arthur. Yeah, I'm going to put it on the shelf. I, I, I think it is a definitive horror film, and it's a masterwork, I think, from Cronenberg. Um, and it's just a uh, exercise in, in editing and direction and, and horror, and so I'm putting it on the shelf. Very good, very good. What do you say, Dalton? Yeah, Arthur's absolutely right. I think it's it's peak Cronenberg. Uh, it's if you want to tell somebody what Cronenberg's about at like the height of his prowess, it's either this or you could go to a history of violence. But it's just it's this is so much more prototypical. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think history of violence has got like visually is very him, but this is so him in terms of like his idiosyncrasies and like the shit that he's into. Whether it's you know legs that go all the way down to the ground or uh, you know teeth falling out, whichever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, both and. What do you say, Kirsten? I mean, it is on my shelf. As I, I think that it's extreme, extremely uh, shelfable, and it's definitive 
of a large portion of the uh, the body horror genre. Very good, very good. I think you put Videodrome on the shelf first, but you put this right next to it. Really? Yeah. Okay. I, I still like Videodrome a bit more. Uh, we'll but... Well, this it. show wasn't about Videodrome, <laughs> Dustin. Yeah, uh, this is a, this is like me and uh, Blade Runner 2049. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I still say shelf, though. I definitely say shelf, uh, especially for horror purists. we got to watch Videodrome someday because I need yes. you to explain it to me because <laughs> I didn't care for it the first Long time. Long live the new flesh, man. All right. All right. Before we move on, I... If someone says the word flesh one more goddamn time, <laughs> I swear. And planting eggs. Um, <laughs> before we move on, i I, I just curious what... Which which piece of body horror gets you the most? Ooh. For me, it's the th- it's the fingernails. I, I I can't do fingernails. Anytime fingernails peel off, I I can't do it. That that makes me the most squeamish. So I'm just curious: is it is it the vomiting, teeth falling out, skin peeling? It's teeth. For me, it's always been teeth. It will always be teeth. I hate anything where there are uh, disembodied teeth. You had a lot of unpleasant years at the dentist, so that makes I sense. did. Well, uh, skin peeling off. Uh, you know, I have dermatological issues. Yeah, yeah. the skin, like the sloughing off of skin, is just like, oh, oh, it's a nightmare. I think it's still the arm break and the arm wrestling match. Yeah. It, that just seems so very, very real and just painful. Mm. Yeah, that, that there's some there's some sense in which these. It's so fantastic what's going on yeah. uh, in the mm. other parts that I'm able to sort of, like, I don't know, yeah. bracket it off. Yeah. But the arm break could happen. Yeah, that had, yeah. yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, good point. Cool. Yeah. Good question, Arthur. Yeah, I was just curious. I like it very much. All right, well, that's it. That's the show. Um, we're doing a marathon, though, so I have to stay on, don't I? Yes, you do. You so, do. So, more of I Dream of Gina, and what are we doing next, Arthur? Well, we're going a vastly different direction next week. Uh, Thank God. Because we're, uh, we're talking about America's pastime. We're talking... Uh, Baseball? I hear there's no crying in baseball. Ah, uh, yes. If you thought we were done talking about masculinity <laughs> in a Gina Davis marathon, boy, howdy, were you wrong? <laughs> we're talking about sports next week. That's right. It's going to be very wholesome. We are going to do uh, the the '90s uh, sports classic, uh, A League of Their Own. Adorable. I'm so excited. Very, very excited. Uh, so yeah, that's it. Uh, follow us on Twitter at good underscore trash. Uh, that's this show and all of Good Trash Media. Speaking of Good Trash Media, go to our website, goodtrashmedia.com. We put all the stuff there. All of it. It's all good. It's all there. Check it it's out. It's all trash. It's mostly trash. <laughs> uh, if you like, can thro- confirm. If you like throwing your money in the trash can, you can go to patreon.com forward slash GTM <laughs> and help keep the lights on. Feed the dumpster fire. Yeah, look, we gotta make something to keep our brains from exploding. We watch too many movies. We gotta get this out somewhere, so. We appreciate it. Yes, indeed. Thank you very much, dear listener. You keep watching, we'll keep talking, and we'll see you all next time. I'm not afraid.